Well, I'm going to go ahead and get started. Maybe we'll see people showing up. Either way, it's recorded, so let's go ahead and and get started. Let's start with a word of prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you for your goodness. We thank you for your word. We thank you we can take this hour to study your word. How we pray that it would be transformative for us and pleasing in your sight. Give us your spirit, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, the book of Deuteronomy, I'm excited to teach. I hope that you are as well. Uh, It is the final book of the Pentateuch. Pentateuch just literally means five books. And the Pentateuch is the first five books of your Bible. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. So Deuteronomy stands in the fifth place. Also in the Hebrew canon, there are three sections of Scripture, just like in the New Testament, the Christian understanding, we have the Gospels and the Book of Acts and the Epistles. Well, in Jewish way of understanding the Old Testament, you have the Torah, the law sometimes, the prophets, the Nevi'im, and the writings, the Ketuvim. And so Deuteronomy would be the last book of the Torah, the law. The name of the book comes from the Greek translation of the Old Testament verse in Deuteronomy 17, 18, which says, Also it shall be when he, the king, sits on the throne of his kingdom, that he shall write for himself, here it is, a copy of this law in a book from the one before the priest, the Levites. And so that phrase, copy, law, in Greek is deuteronomion. Deuteronomy on, which literally means second law. Deutero, second, nomos or nomion, law. And so that comes into the Latin translation of the Bible, which became the Bible in the West for a thousand years. Deuteronomium, Deuteronomium. And so that's where we get the English word Deuteronomy. So we titled the book after the Greek, which is reflected in the Latin, Deuteronomy. And the good thing about the title Deuteronomy, second law, is it assumes there was an earlier first law. And that's good. But it's somewhat misleading if we think second law is another law. Because it's not that. That's why it's translated in English, the king shall write for himself not a second law, but a copy of this law. Because the word in Hebrew, Mishnah, can mean second or copy. And so uh, some scholars have said that, you know, the English title Deuteronomy is a little bit, can be misleading if you're thinking, oh, this is a second law. God, you know, Exodus, the Ten Commandments, that was the first law, and this is now the second law. And that would be a misunderstanding of the translation of the book. Now, the Hebrew name is simply taking the first two words, the first words of the first verse of the book. And that's the way all of the Hebrew Books are named. They look at the first word or the first main word of the first verse, and then the book gets its name from that. And so in Hebrew, it's not called Deuteronomy, it's called Ela Hadevarim. Ela Hadevarim, that's the name of this book, and it simply means these are the words. Because if you start to read in Deuteronomy, the first thing you'll read are these are the words of Moses. And so Ela, these, the bear, but in the plural, had the bear, had the berim, the words, and we supply the R, these are the words, but literally in Hebrew, these, the words, and that's 
the name of the book. And that's true, again, for most of the Hebrew books and the Hebrew canon. The first two words, the first word in the text, you know, like in Genesis, Breshith um, uh, is um, um, in the beginning. That's the name of the book. So the book has never been in question as far as the canon goes. By the way, the Jews have had some questions concerning their canon. When I say canon, I mean that we know it's inspired, right? There have been New Testament books that have been questioned over the years of whether or not they are inspired. And you can read about that in the early church even. Some people weren't sure about 2 Peter or about the book of James or even the book of Revelation. Are they really inspired? And so uh, those questions had to be settled well, there was a few books in the Jewish canon that were questioned throughout history, especially the book of Esther, which doesn't actually appear in the Dead Sea Scrolls. It's the only book not to appear at the Dead Sea Scrolls. And the Song of Solomon also was questioned by Jewish rabbis, and you can understand why. It's such a passionate song about um, uh, the love between a man and a woman that it can be somewhat scandalous. And some rabbis thought that, weren't sure that it ought to be in the canon. But no, there's no record that any Jewish rabbi, scholar, counsel, or anything else has ever questioned the book of Deuteronomy. It is central uh, to the Torah and to the scriptures as well. In fact, if you understand some of the Jewish movements, some of the other books outside of the Torah, like the Sadducees, they didn't accept anything outside the Torah. Um, and uh, the Samaritans didn't accept anything outside the Torah. That's why you have the Samaritan Pentateuch, and you don't have the Samaritan Nevi'im because they didn't accept the prophets. But, um, but no one's ever questioned, no Jewish scholars ever questioned the authenticity, the canonicity of the book of Deuteronomy. Now, I want to talk a little bit about higher criticism because that really comes into play in these first five books. And maybe you've been troubled by that, and maybe you haven't. And if you haven't, awesome. But if you have, I just want to speak to that a little bit. So higher criticism of Scripture arose in principle in the Enlightenment. So in the 1600s, as man begins to look to the natural sciences and reason to be able to explain everything, he begins to look at the Bible and says, well, we should be able to explain the Bible in terms of natural processes and reason. And so higher criticism in principle really begins in um, the Enlightenment, but doesn't come into actual being until really the Tubingen School in the 19th century under F.C. Bauer and Julius, Julius Wellhausen and the documentary hypothesis also in the 19th century, also in Germany. So Germany gets the credit for the Reformation and it also gets the blame for higher criticism. And um, lower criticism is good. That's what Bible-believing scholars engage in all the time. So we compare Scripture with Scripture. What's the form? What's the context? And we try to determine meaning by these lower criticisms, which respects the text as inspired, but recognizes that it has a meaning that we need to find, and there are tools that we can use in the science of hermeneutics. Higher criticism is not that. Higher criticism says there is no inspiration Therefore, how do we explain, humanly speaking, these books? And so it's very destructive. It's really a, an act of unbelief. Higher criticism is rejected by all conservative Bible-believing scholars. But that's all you'll find in the, in the you know, major universities around the world or in any uh, uh, seminary, major seminary, mainline seminary, I should say, 
uh, higher criticism is just accepted. Uh, if you go to some secular school, they'll just look at the higher critics and say, well, this is how the Bible came to be, and they won't even consider things like inspiration. Um, so uh, the early form of higher criticism rejected all of the Old Testament books being written before the Ezra school or the period of the exile and restoration of Israel back into the land. And so they would say none of the books were written before four or 500 B.C. Now think about that. That's, that's really destructive to Scripture because we believe Moses wrote these books, right? And these books were written in the time of David and things like that. Prophets were writing, but they said no, none of this. There was some, maybe some core oral you know, thing passed down, but it was just legend and stories. And, and then Ezra, with his concerns for reforming Israel, writes all these books, and that was the original form. And then you had this documentary hypothesis form that I just give you, the JEDP. If you've ever gone to seminary or listened, you'll hear JEDP. And when you say, what in the world is that? And again, that's the idea that there was an original kernel of oral transmission that people said was inspired or God's word and it got written in some original form that we don't have any manuscript evidence for but then you get all these different schools of editors that come through and they take that form and they recognize that people respect it and so they want to use it for their own purposes and so they edit it they redact it you'll hear a lot about redactors to reflect their own concerns and desires and so the J stands for the Yahwehist school and so they believe, again, that this is, this is all made up out of whole cloth, okay? But I'm, this is taken for fact in, in universities and seminaries around the world, that there was this Yahweh's school, and they took that original core that people believe was the word of God, and they redacted it, changed it to reflect their interests and their desires, and of course, they're known for the Yahweh name of God, the uh, all capitals Lord. And so, you know, the editor or the, the critics say that whenever you see that emphasized, that's evidence of the Yahweh school, you know, changing scripture. And then you have the Elohim school. And of course, Yahweh and Elohim are names of God. And so when you see the name Elohim a lot, the critics will say, well, that's evidence that a second group came through, the Elohimists, and they had certain interests and they changed scripture to reflect their concerns. And then there's the Deuteronomist school. There's an entire school of Deuteronomists, and we're looking at the book of Deuteronomy. That's why I thought this would be important to bring up. And they had their concerns, and much of the book of Deuteronomy includes that, but you can find their fingerprints in the other books, the critics say, you know, in their keen imagination for all this nonsense. And then you have the priestly school. And whenever you see sacrifice and worship being emphasized, and in any of the books of the Bible, that's evidence that this priestly school of redactors and editors went through and changed the text again. And that's taken as just absolute fact in seminaries around. The, I know, you've never heard that, right? That's just a fact. In universities, seminaries, this is the way Scripture came to be. There's no evidence for any of it. There's no like core manuscript that we find before this or that redactor school came through. It's just complete garbage. And it's the arrogance of modernism that just, again, puts this on. And this way they can carve up scripture and say it wasn't written by one person. It was all these different groups coming through and editing it and changing it. You can see why so many young people, when they get into schools and they get into these seminaries, they become unbelievers when they leave. Because this is just a blatant attack and rejection of inspiration. But Deuteronomy is very important in this theory. So I thought I'd bring it up to you. 
And so that's what they say at first. Later, the later critics, it's what's great about studying higher criticism is you, you'll find each generation comes along and says how dumb the ones before were. And they change the theories. So you can use them to refute each other. And people um, like uh, C.S. Lewis was very, were very skilled at doing that and using them to refute uh, the ones that came after. But the second, like, later group started to say, no, there's way too much evidence that there was, a, was an earlier uh, uh, books of Revelation before the return of the captivity. And so what began to be said about Deuteronomy in particular, and that's what I want to focus on, obviously, is that, well, Deuteronomy was written not by Ezra and these scribes, but actually it was written during the time of Josiah. And they referred in the text itself, give them credit for actually looking at the text for a change. And they found some verses like in 2 Kings 22.8 and 2 Chronicles 34.14 where this book is found at the time of Jeremiah. Or I'm sorry, at the time of Josiah, which is also the time of Jeremiah actually. <laughs> but uh, they find this book and they say, oh, see, that refers to the fact and that's the editors, redactors writing back in that they wrote the book then. But they're saying that it was found, you know, because they're all liars. I mean, it, this is just a, you know, absurd. I mean, think of it. They're lying. They're saying they found this book that was of antiquity, but they themselves actually wrote it. But this is how they fool people into believing uh, that it was actually given by Moses. So, I mean, they have such a ridiculous view. But um, it's interesting because then the generation after that of higher critics, they say, no, 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 it wasn't written out of whole cloth at Josiah's time because that's absurd. There was a kernel of truth of the book of Deuteronomy. There was some core, you know, like Q in the New Testament. There was some core manuscript uh, tradition that goes back before Josiah. But what happens at Josiah's time is a lot more stuff gets put in it. and It gets this great editing and redacting that happens. But, but what's interesting is they're getting closer to the, liter to the actual view that we have in the church and that the Jews have in their tradition that Moses wrote this book a long time ago because they started in the 400s, 500s, it came into being, and then in the 700s it came into being, and now it's the, well, it came into being before that, but it got, you know, changed more. So they are slowly getting there. Maybe before Christ returns, they'll actually get back to the truth that the facts actually uh, line up with, but we'll see. Um, but the big problem with their view, the big attack on scripture is that the unity of the book comes much later. I mean, even the latest view says there was still editing and redacting done at the time of Ezra. And so they, they basically will go as far back as the, the manuscript evidence allows them because we have copies of Deuteronomy fragments of many, many fragments of Deuteronomies from, from the Dead Sea Scrolls that go back to 300 BC. So they can't go any earlier than that and say it came into being. Um, because the evidence is, is actually existent that it can't. It, it was already in its form in 300 B.C. Um, so uh, that, that stops them. But they go all the way up, really, until that point. But um, the unity of the book is what's being attacked and the antiquity of the book. But what I want to tell you right from the beginning here is that we can look at these same linguistic... What they do is they look at linguistic patterns, word usage, usage hapex, legomenon. That's a neat word. That just means the first time we see a word appear uh, uh, in Scripture. It's, a, it's a, a word that has no other word in Scripture. It's, the, it's its only word. So they'll see that and they'll make all sorts of conclusions that uh, actually don't follow. 
Then they'll look at ancient stelas, the Hittite uh, uh, manuscripts, uh, um, Ugaritic, Egyptian, all these other, you know, fragments they can find. And they'll use that to try to theorize and they'll completely ignore the uniform rabbinical and the uniform tradition, Christian tradition going back, Christians 1,500 years going, uh, the Jewish tradition going back 2,500 years that Moses wrote all of it. All right, Moses wrote all, except for the very end that talks about his death. But they reject that. And they make, there's all this subjectivity in evaluating these so-called, you know, objective things like linguistic patterns and word uses. There's all kinds of subjectivity involved in that. And so, you know, they claim to be objective, but they're not. Uh, they're subjective, and they subjectively reject the uniform tradition, which I find troubling. Because to me, that's like, that's valuing machine over man. Well, I'm going to believe this rock that I'm going to make all these conclusions about that's completely subjective... Right? You know, I dig up these rocks and that tells me whatever. And yet I have all of this written record of human history where, you know, all these scholars are saying, no, Moses wrote it, Moses wrote it. And I reject all that. And I'm going to make these subjective conclusions on what I want to believe already. And there's a lot of circular reasoning involved in higher criticism too. So, for example, they'll say literary analysis determines the sources. So it can't be Moses. It's got to be all these editors because we see Yahweh is used a lot. Well, that has to be a Yahweh school. And Elohim is used a lot. Well, that has to be an Elohim school, which is absurd again. And so they'll, they'll use literary analysis to determine the sources. But then they'll take uh, the sources and they'll say that determines an evolution of religion in all these different schools. So you say one proves this and then that same one proves it, proves it back. And so it's circular and you can't. Um, and, and it's uh, illogical at that point. But what I want to show you in, under Roman numeral three is that the textual marks of this book show forth both antiquity and unity. And there's been some neat things that have been done that have refuted the higher critics uh, on different levels and so forth. One of, one, of the, one of the most significant things that have been done, and Meredith Klein, uh, great, uh, you know, uh, reformed scholar, um, and I don't believe everything Klein did, but in this field of higher criticism, uh, Meredith Klein is one of the big time good guys. Because what he has done in studying a lot of these Near Eastern um, records and in particular, this Near Eastern Suzerain Vassal Treaty that we know as Covenant. And we see it all over the place. You know, this great king comes in and he takes over this smaller region and he declares to them what he has done and why he's done it and what they're going to do now, what he's going to do when they enter into this covenant ceremony. And we've been looking at a little bit of that in Genesis. Well, there's all sorts of uh, records now that we're finding of, of these ancient, you know, Hittite and Egyptian and even later Assyrian uh, suzerain vassal covenantal um, ceremonies and uh, uh, records that have been uh, entered into. And we, and we have, the, we have the, you know, the fragments of these things. And they go back to the 3rd and 2nd millennium B.C. And here's the structure. I want to notice it in, le in letter A here. Uh, we see this over and over again. And this is the ancient structure. This would be the 2nd millennia B.C. structure of the suzerain vassal covenantal ceremony that would be entered into in many places in the ancient Near East. There would be a preamble. Uh, and so these are the words of the great, you know, king so-and-so, blah, blah, blah. And then there would be the historical prologue. You know, I entered into this land and I rescued you from the, profess uh, from the um, 
oppressors, and this is what happened at the battle of so-and-so. And so it goes back and it looks at all the things that this king, who's now declaring this, this, this uh, treaty upon you, it's a, it's a sovereignly imposed treaty, but it gives you certain rights, kind of like the Magna Carta. And so that's what this these documents are over and over again. And we, and we can see the structure. Preamble, historical prologue. Then there are the general stipulations about why, you know, the great laws that he's giving. And he in the future is related to the past, right? So these laws were made and this is what you will do in the future. And then it summarizes the purpose of all these specific stipulations. And that's called the specific stipulation ceremonies where you'll get when you buy, you know, a canoe from so-and-so, you have to go to this place and do this. And so all this specific stuff to regulate commerce and uh, other things like that, that's in the treaty. And then there will be witnesses of the deities, whatever gods of the land, they'll bear witness. Remember that was, I, I showed you where Moses, um, I'm sorry, where God causes the uh, smoking oven and the burning torch to pass between the parts. Remember, Abram had to cut those parts and the symbolism was, anybody that passes between the parts says, I will tear myself apart. Let the gods tear me apart like these animals if I don't keep my part of the treaty. That's the calling together the witnesses of the deities and then the blessings and the cursings. The cursings literally, um, but there would be sometimes stipulations of cursings that, well, if you do this, this will happen. And if you do this, here's the blessing and so forth. So blessings and cursings. Sometimes there'd be some other parts. There would be public reading that would be mandated every year or every four years. You have to read this treaty again. Ceremonies that they would enter into um, to, again, uh, recover with God and there'd be renewals and procedures. But this is the basic outline of ancient Hittite and Egyptian, what we call Near Eastern, because Far Eastern would be like China and Korea. Uh, Near Eastern uh, treaties, uh, covenantal treaties, suzerain vassal ceremonies, covenants. Now, interestingly, what Klein and some of the other scholars have shown and demonstrated, and even the higher critics have to accept it, is that the entire book of Deuteronomy fits this structure. Now that's huge, okay? Uh, so you can show, for example, chapter one, verses one to five. That's the preamble. The book literally starts with, these are the words which Moses spoke. A clear preamble, just like we see over and over again in these Hittite theories or, or um, Hittite uh, ceremonies. And then there is the historical prologue. Beginning in verse 6, the Lord our God spoke to us in Horeb, saying, you have dwelt long enough at this mountain. That was 40 years earlier. Horeb is Sinai. So immediately after the, the preamble, Moses goes into what God did for Israel at Sinai, the historical prologue for what's about to come. All right. Then you get the general stipulations beginning in chapter 5 all the way through chapter 11 of Deuteronomy. Chapter 5, the general stipulations, the Ten Commandments. All right. And, and then all of the laws that flow from that, all kind of specific situations, the specific stipulations are 12, chapters 12 through 26. Chapters 27 and 28 are blessings and cursings. Famously, you can read, you know, blessed are you when you do this, blessed are you when you do that, cursed are you if you do this. Uh, that's in our book. And then God himself witnesses this whole covenantal structure of the book of Deuteronomy in chapter 30, verse 19, in chapter 31, verse 19, in 21 and 22, and 26 and 32. Let me just read some of those so that you can see God himself uh, calling uh, witnesses to what's going on. So 30, verse 19, I call heaven and earth as witness today against you. 
All right? And then 31, verse 19. Now therefore write down this song for yourselves and teach it to their children. Put it in their mouths that this song may be a witness for me against the children of Israel. And so forth. And it just keeps repeating this witness idea over and over again. And all of chapter 32, the song of Moses, is given as a witness. A witness of God against Israel in this covenantal stipulation structure. Now the ramifications, I said of this, are are huge. What this says is the book of Deuteronomy has to be ancient because it matches the ancient Near Eastern Hittite Treaty and not the later one. See, the, the critics have responded back saying, well, the Assyrians in the 700s, they too had these ceremonial covenantal uh, structures and a lot of the things are found in it. Yes, but there's, there's never historical prologues in the Assyrian version in the 700s. And the uh, divine witnesses aren't there in the Assyrian version. Assyrians were arrogant. They didn't need to come in and say what they did for you. They're just going to say, you'll do it. I mean, Assyria was a, was a brutal empire, and they didn't need the gods to call witness, so they didn't have that. And, they, and the Assyrians, awesomely, had cursings but no blessings in their covenants. That's awesome, right? So, but, but see, that, what, what I'm saying is the book of Deuteronomy has all the marks of the ancient structure. Do you see that? So the antiquity of the book is witnessed to by the fact that it has this structure, and you, you can't deny that it has this structure, and that also argues against the higher critical assumption of constant editing and redacting. Because you can't do that when the entire structure of the book is a covenantal ceremony. I mean, do you see the ramifications of this kind of scholarship? I mean, I just get chills when I think about it. The book has to be whole. It has to be unified. You can't have guys going through in the 700s and changing it and in the 400s and changing it again. When the entire thing from the first chapter to the end is a structure of a covenantal ceremony exactly the kind that you see in the 1500s and 1700s in Hittite countries and in, in Egypt itself. It has that. And so, uh, you know, again, the, since Deuteronomy is one of the uh, main books uh, and the whole uh, documentary hypothesis centers on this book, I wanted to use this book to show you how conservative scholarship is refuting the higher critics. And they haven't really given an answer yet to this, other than trying to claim, oh, it's more according to the Assyrian form of the Hittite treaty, and it's not. It's not the Assyrian treaty. It's more the Hittite and the Egyptian treaty because of those qualifications. So uh, another indication of Deuteronomy's um, presence and weight and antiqua,ty and authority is that at Qumram, the Dead Sea, we know where the Dead Sea Scrolls are found. Deuteronomy shows up more than any other book. The Essenes, I remember the Essenes had a lot of, you know, they loved laws and they had their own like law codes and books and rules and regulations. But there are so many fragments of Deuteronomy all over the place. And again, many of them ancient, two or 300 B.C. Um, and uh, extremely accurate. Before the Dead Sea Scrolls, the earliest complete manuscript that we had of Deuteronomy was dated to 1009 AD. That's only a thousand years ago. And that's, you know, I've got to think, 2500 if I'm doing it right. If 1500 BC is the time of Moses, roughly. So that's 2500 years, right, before it was written. I mean, after it was written. So how in the world could it possibly be accurate? Well, with the Dead Sea Scrolls, we go from 1009 A.D. to 300 B.C. 
And those fragments are exactly what we have uh, 1,000, 1,300 years later. The, the differences that you find are minor orthography differences, spelling, punctuation, but not words, not doctrines. And so nobody can deny, since we found these so many fragments of Deuteronomy in the Dead Sea Scrolls, that the Dead Sea Scrolls show that this book really is accurate, uh, even though the latest Masoretic text we have is 1009 AD. So uh, also, in the New Testament, at least the third most book quoted of the Old Testament is Deuteronomy. It might be more because there are some oblique references, but um, Isaiah would be first, the Psalm second, and then Deuteronomy, the third most quoted book. And not only that, but Deuteronomy is quoted and referred to in all three parts of the New Testament canon, the Gospels, the book of Acts, and uh, the Epistles, and, and the book of Revelation. All have quotes of Deuteronomy. Also important in this um, understanding of Deuteronomy and seeing its ancientness and, and uniform nature is early war philosophy, especially that you see in Deuteronomy 20, that we see again in other nations about 1500 BC. That, for example, in Deuteronomy 20, the whole instruction on war, and this has been called the war philosophy of the Old Testament, or at least of the Exodus period, Notice verse, or chapter 20 begins with, when you go out to war against your enemies. So the whole chapter is concerned with war theory. And the war in Deuteronomy is entirely offensive. That's significant. When you come to a city and besiege it, and you offer terms of surrender. Because in 500 B.C. or in 700 B.C., Israel's not going out conquering anything. They're defending against Assyria and Babylon, against their hostile neighbors after they get back in, after the uh, uh, exile is over in the 500s and 400s. There's no offensive war. So if the book, again, is written recently, then it makes no sense that the entire structure of war is all about offensiveness, which is what Israel's doing when they're coming into the land. They've got to take over the land. And so this book, again, within the book, gives itself evidence that Clearly, uh, this is given at the time of the Exodus and not hundreds of years later when Israel's on the defense and not on the offense. Uh, plus some of the things like it, that it's a non-professional army. They don't, they don't have soldiers, full-time soldiers. They have citizens who are going to war. That is early because as soon as Israel gets a king, they have a professional army. You're a professional soldier. Deuteronomy only knows war with non-professional, volunteer citizens like uh, America started out with in the Revolutionary War. Plus the uh, command to execute all the males and uh, take the women. Uh, that's similar to other second century millennium war theory and practice of the Eastern, Near Eastern nations. One more argument for and just evidence for Israel's or the, the antiquity and unity of the book is the poetic passages. Poetry is accepted by the critics as being largely free from redaction and updating because the form of poetry is determinative. If you change the form, it doesn't work. So you can't tamper with poetry. So many of the songs that you see, and if you compare the song of Miriam, for example, in Exodus 15, with some of the songs of Deuteronomy, it's clearly the same era. Uh, it's clearly the same events that they're talking about. Uh, it's the Mosaic period. And so uh, also God appearing as king in both Exodus and Deuteronomy. Uh, God is king over Israel, which in later concerns they wanted to establish and show forth the Davidic 
kingdom. Uh, God is warrior again in both of these books, Exodus and Deuteronomy. And so the commonality uh, and the critical view that they're centuries apart when clearly they're the same error is, is um, assaulted by the book itself. So let's go to Roman number four, occasion and structure. Now think of this. This is where it gets personal, right? Now a lot of that stuff was technical background and maybe some of you are like, I want to bring you back now, okay? Come back from your thoughts. You are blocking all of that out, but that really is important and I know some of you do get challenged by that. So um, I was trying to give you that background for a reason, but now we're going to get into stuff that we're all interested in. Think of it. Israel is on the plains of Moab. That's east of the Jordan. They're about to enter the promised land. That's the occasion of this book. It's after 40 years of wandering in the wilderness and the previous generation, their fathers, were at this same point 40 years earlier and they failed. All right, so that's the, that's the you know, urgency and the structure and the occasion here is, is uh, they're about to enter the land. And you can... Uh, Divide the book and structure into three great speeches of Moses. The historical review from chapters 1 to 4. The law from 5 to 29, if we include both general and specific, when I looked at more the Hittite uh, treaty structure. And then covenantal renewal, including blessings and cursings and witnessings in 29 through 33. And that's the three major sections of the book. Um, the book's been called a law book because of all the commands. It's been called a series of sermons because there are three big speeches of Moses. It's been called the National Constitution of Israel. It's been called a system of catechesis because throughout the book, it talks about teach this to your children and speak these things to your children. And so a preservation of the faith, a teaching of the faith. And it's also been noticed, as I pointed out already, as this great covenantal renewal ceremony. So what is it? There's been, you know, what is Deuteronomy? It's a really neat book because it's got all these different features. And as I said, they're on the plains. They're in the plains of Moab. They're east of the Jordan. And then Moses gives this long flashback to four decades earlier when they were at Horeb. When their fathers were there, they were at Sinai. And Horeb Sinai really is determinative for Israel. The immediate failure notwithstanding. Because um, uh, it really becomes the hard lesson that they learn. Moses can now point back to that failure and say, don't do like your fathers did. It becomes the failure of their fathers. becomes another incentive, uh, another motivation for them not to fail. They have that example, that bad example. Now they're even more prepared than their fathers were because of it. So Moses uses that as a, in a sense um, as, a, um, as a great incentive for them going forward. Um, also, uh, the entire book is given in the sermonic imperative and not the legislative descriptive, all right? And this is huge. There is an ongoing present. No matter where you read in the book of Deuteronomy, even when he's doing a flashback, it's the present. It's always the now, right? The now. Uh, and 12 times, as it is to this day, even to this day, it's always this day in Deuteronomy. It's always right now you're about to do something. God's calling you to do something, and you need to go into it and do it. So think about it. Here's the great context. Israel has been delivered from tyranny, but they failed to inherit the blessed promised land. And so now here you are again, 40 years later. 
you're poised on entering. You're surrounded by hostile, idolatrous, sexually immoral people and nations who have other gods. God has just formed you into his people, his nation, his kingdom. That happened at Sinai and he gave you laws and he gave you a priesthood and he gave you judges and heads of the tribes and the elders and all of that. The 72. So there's a governmental structure now. And yet God is your king, clearly. You're not, you don't have a king. God is your king. And you're commanded to go forth as you keep his word. That's your thing. Keep his word. Go forth in his name. Because it won't be by your power. It won't be by your might. But only as you look to God can you hope to not only stand against, but even be victorious against hostile enemy forces that are way stronger than you. And so that's their, that's their situation. They're in a, now they're, they're specifically a little bit different from us, a temporal national homeland to conquer. But I, I'm saying all that to say that's where we are, right? Surrounded by hostile forces with no power against them, called to go forth with his word, proclaim his truth that he is king. That's where Israel was. All right, ours is the whole world and he's already completed the conquest. They have to complete a typical conquest, but God already is king of those lands too. That's why God can say, strike them down. And God uh, tells them, you know, now for us, it's ungodly ideas that we strike down. They did have a war of flesh and blood. We war against power, principalities, spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenlies. But do you see the similarities? I mean, we really are in the same place. We have a land promised to us, the whole earth, and we're to go forth into the whole world. They have the land promised to them in order to go forth. And so I really see a a great... um, application to us spiritually of what the Israelites were actually on the verge of being called to do in the book of Deuteronomy. And so that's the great application, it seems to me, that we should get from this book. Um, Also in the book, for the first time in scripture, there becomes this great emphasis on the written word. Up until this point, up until Moses, there really is no written scripture that we know of. There may have been some things passed on, but really no command to write. But if you look at the book, and I give you some of the words here, chapter places, 27, uh, 31, uh, over and over again, that these words are to be written down. And that's important. That's huge. Uh, they're to be written. They're to be read. They're to be memorized. They're to be taught. And so this is a new thing in the life of Israel, that there's going to be this scripture. They've already been Uh, told that the law that Moses wrote, the Ten Commandments, which may have also included the whole book of of Exodus and and Leviticus, and that was to be put in the ark. Well, this too is to be written, but it's to be taught and read every day, all through the year. Individual Israelites are to read and to know and to teach their children. And so there would have been the uh, Deuteronomy being taught over and over again. It was to be read uh, annually. It was to be read by the king and copied by him. It was to be read every seven years in a great assembly. And so interestingly, Moses, who's about to die, and part of Deuteronomy is the last will and testament of Moses, with the death of Moses, I want you to think of it, Deuteronomy becomes the replacement. Deuteronomy becomes the replacement for a living prophet to now instruct God's people by a book. And that's really significant because that's where we are. We're instructed by a book. Well, that begins for Israel with Deuteronomy. Up until that time, think of the patriarchs. You had Abram, Isaac, and Jacob, and God appeared to them at various times. And they led the people as prophets. And even in the time of uh, Egypt, when Moses comes to them. 
Uh, Moses is the one who's inspired. But Moses is about to die. And so Moses is preparing for them something to take his place. And it's the books of Moses. They're going to be the authority and the word of God that Moses gave them now on. So there's this um, great um, new thing in the people of God, which now has continued ever since. Uh, there's a few other things. There's a, there's a regular and even startling switch from the second person singular to the second person plural and vice versa. You don't see that in English. I'm going to call your attention to that when it comes in the, in the Hebrew text. Interestingly, the plural, when you see the the Jewish plural, you know, the English yuns that we in Pittsburgh have developed. Um, it's actually the plural that gives the individual emphasis. You'll see that in the text. Whenever Moses is talking in the plural, he's talking about each person doing something. When he's talking in the singular, he's talking to the people as a whole. You know, like a collective singular. Uh, it's the opposite of what you would think, but it, the context shows that to be the case. So we'll look at that. Um, by the way, uh, in the Jewish canon, just to point out again the centrality and the importance of the book of Deuteronomy. So you have, I've already mentioned to you, the Pentateuch, first five books, literally five books, Torah, first five books. Well, there is also the Entetuch in the Hebrew canon. Remember, there's the Torah, the Nevi'im, the Ketuvim. Well, the Torah is the first five books, so it's Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, number five. And then in the Hebrew canon, you get the First section of the prophets, sometimes called the former prophets, Joshua, Judges, no Ruth, that's way later in the canon. Joshua, Judges, Samuel, one book in Jewish canon, Kings, one book. Now do you see this? Right in the middle with four books on either side. Deuteronomy. Torah, Deuteronomy, first section of the, the former prophets, uh, Deuteronomy becomes what's been called the central book of the Enetuk, the first nine books of the Bible. Deuteronomy is at the center. It equally looks backwards and it equally looks forwards. And there again is this ongoing present that is continually urgent that now is the time to live for God. Now is the time to put off idols. Now is the time to believe and to obey. You can't escape it. Throughout Deuteronomy, it's always now. And I think about the book of Hebrews, you know, today is the day. Um, and I couldn't help but think about it with just finishing up the book of Revelation because that was something that so struck me with all of these urgencies in the book of Revelation. And you see it five times in chapter 22. This must shortly take place. Behold, I'm coming quickly. Do not seal the words. The time is at hand. Behold, I'm coming quickly. He testifies to these things. You know, surely I'm coming quickly. And then earlier in the book, the time is near. Behold, I'm coming quickly. And, uh, you know, my take on those uh, urgency passages in Deuteronomy or in uh, Revelation, especially where most of them come in the very last chapter and they don't distinguish. They don't say, well, the three letters is coming quickly, you know, the, or the first three chapters, the seven letters, that's coming quickly, but the rest of it's all future. They don't say that. They don't even say like, well, it's all coming quickly, you know, the destruction of Jerusalem, but then the second coming in the end and the new heavens and the new earth and, and seeing God, that's, that's way. It just says it's all coming, right? And so that's this prophetic urgency. All of those things at 22, in chapter 22, Everything before it is about to happen. And the way I understand that, again, is all of the, uh, the final um, uh, processes leading to the second coming are in motion. And that's what John was urging the people to know. It's all happening now. That's why he doesn't seal the book. It was beginning to happen now. 
and Deuteronomy is about to happen, right? Israel's about to go in. They're about to take over these nations. And they have to live for God now in the light of all those things now, the whole book. Uh, and I see examples of this prophetic urgency, right? God is urging his people to the now because now is the time to live for God. It's the urgency of living now. It's not the urgency of something that's about to happen. It's you need to live now because God is right now in the process of doing something. So think of it in terms of Romans 13, 11, verses uh, 11 to 14. And do this, so this is near the end of the book of Romans after all that doctrine, knowing that the time, that now it is high time to awake out of sleep, for our salvation is nearer than we first believed. The night is far spent. The day is at hand which is right there, right? It's, it's right to, about to happen. You're about to go into the land. You're living for God now. Therefore, let us cast off works of darkness. So here's the prophetic urgency to live for God. Let us put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the day, etc., etc. Put on Jesus Christ. And again, from other books, First Peter, the end of all things is at hand. But it's, it's what? It's an urgency to, be, to live for God now. Therefore, be serious and watchful. Right? It's not the end of all things that are at hand. Go out and buy, you know, foodstuffs and go live in caves. And, you know, it's not that. Go on the mountain and wait. No, live for God. James 5, be patient, establish your heart. The coming of the Lord is at hand. See, it's a, it's a moral commandment urgency. Philippians 4, 5, let your gentleness be known to all. Why? Because the Lord is at hand. Prophetic urgency. James, do not crumble against one another lest you be condemned. Behold, the judge is at the door. This is always the reason to obey. God's right there. That's the urgency that I see in Deuteronomy. That's the urgency I saw in Revelation and throughout the New Testament. Uh, little children, it's the last hour. You know, uh, so uh, Antichrist is coming, etc. And then, you know, behold, I'm coming quickly, Revelation. Blessed is he who keeps the words. See, it's the urgency in order to keep the words. And again, in verse 12, Behold, I am coming quickly. My reward is with me to give to everyone according to his work. So Deuteronomy's today, here's a, here's a quote from the um, scholarly commentary that I look at, uh, the Old Testament international commentary. Um, probably the most scholarly commentary you can get today, recommended number one by Ligonier Ministries. Uh, here's, a, here's a quote. Deuteronomy's today, which is what I'm noticing here, and I'm noticing it in other places. It's ever-present rhetoric of the continual now as a moment of decisive commitment. That's the urgency. Today's the day of salvation. Don't put it off. Live for God today. He's at the door. You see how that works. It calls for continuous interpretation, and I would say application and living out of the divine will. I mean, to me, when you read scripture this way, it really comes alive. God is there today. He's right there. He's at the door. Live for him now. Don't put it off. I think so oftentimes we Christians do that, right? We, we put off whatever it is, whatever we're going to do for God. Oh, it's going to be sometime in the future. And I think scripture to sort of... Uh, overcome that, that natural sluggardliness that we have, that natural procrastination, that natural, oh yes, yeah, someday I'm going to live for God nonsense, um, really urges us, today's the day. What are you waiting for? Now that doesn't mean, because here's the other extreme. Oh, that means i got to run off and go to the seminary and become a minister, right? No, it means live for God where you are right now. There is no some big thing to do. You're already called of God. You're already going into your land, whatever it is. 
Keep what your duty is. You know, maybe it's a homemaker mom. Live for God in everything that you do. Make it deliberate. Think about him. Right now, he's at, he's at the door. And you can glorify him in everything that you do. Or whatever. You know, you're a carpenter. In everything that you do. Understand your duty is to the Lord. This prophetic urgency. You can live for God. You can dedicate it all to him now. And that's what I understand here in the book of Deuteronomy. With this constant now about to go in. And I can't help but you know, mirror it with where we are in the faith. You know, God has conquered. We go into the land, the Great Commission, so forth. Proclaim the word, live it out. Uh, and this urgency to do it that we get in the book of Hebrews. Today's the day, don't wait for another day. And so that's the great, I think, one-to-one application I want to bring in. Um, some content and themes very quickly. Um, the heart of Israel's covenant and religion, you can find it in the book of Deuteronomy in chapter 10, and of course, Jesus calls our attention to these verses. Chapter 10, verses 12 and 13. And now, Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, and to love him, and to serve the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul, and to keep the commandments of the Lord and his statutes, which I command you today for your good. That's what Israel was called. That's the heart of the Old Testament administration of the covenant of grace. They weren't called to keep those commandments to earn God's favor. They had God's favor. Therefore, they were to keep the commandments the exact same way that we are, out of gratitude, out of love for God, out of a desire to see him glorified, knowing that they would fall short. You can't possibly read the book of Deuteronomy and think that God is telling Israel, earn something from me. Because all through it, it's the sacrifices and the sacrificial system and the blood that you've got to spill. Why? Because you're such sinners. I mean, that just comes out so much. What, what is the entire book of Leviticus about? You're so sinful. You've got to kill all these animals constantly so that I don't destroy you. I mean, how can anybody read the Old Testament and say that the Mosaic Covenant was somehow a, a recapitulation of the covenant of works? It was not. It was an administration of the covenant of grace. They were not commanded to keep the com commandments to earn something from God. God was giving it to them freely in spite of themselves. Keep the commandments because you love me. I mean, that's what Jesus says in the New Testament, right? If you love me, keep my commandments. God is saying the same thing to Israel. If you love me, keep my commandments. And so the determinative moment is the exodus, the appearance on Sinai when God saves them and he, and he gives them you know, his covenant and he gives them the stipulations of righteousness, which is what we're called to too. And then the absolute monotheism. Again, the critics can't explain that um, one, of the, one of the interesting things, all of the ancient pantheons that you can read about, you know, we, we know the Greek and the Roman, you know, the pantheons of the gods, Athena, the Zeus, etc. Well, there's many records of ancient peoples, including Near Eastern peoples in the second millennium, having these lists of gods and goddesses, right? Um, Yahweh is never in those lists. That's really significant because these people had interaction with Israel. He's never in a list of gods and goddesses. Uh, it's, critics can't explain it. And the monotheism of Deuteronomy, the constant warnings of turning to idols. Because again, in the higher critical view that you know, monotheism develops over time. Israel began like a polytheistic country like anybody else. And you see these different redactors bringing monotheism in slowly when it served their purposes and a bunch of other nonsense. But throughout Deuteronomy, monotheism. 
God alone is God. There is no other God. Don't go to idols. Don't forget God. Don't go to the world. And so uh, we see that. Um, the Torah as divine instruction in Deuteronomy, I just want to notice this too. Again, it's presented as preached law. It's not a legal code. It's not the code of Hammurabi. Do this, do this, do this. Moses is preaching the law. It's exhort exhortation, right? It's, uh, it's calling God's people to respond to him. It's a personal proclamation uh, to the people of God. That's what you get in Deuteronomy. The life and vitality of responding to the preached word and trusting in God. Uh, covenant is very important, as I mentioned already. And witness is very important. Constant call to put away the idols. Don't become the world like the world. The law is a means of grace, not as a means of performance. And uh, ultimately, we see uh, concern for justice. Uh, great concern for the foreigner, for the alien, the widow, the orphan. Not, not as a condescending, they're so much less than you. Give them some of your crumbs. But they're equal to you. They're just like you. You were just like them in Egypt, remember? You were a foreigner in Egypt. Nowhere in ancient literature do we see these uh, people groups considered so much less slaves, foreigners, you know, widows, orphans, being equal with you. And that's why you're to help them. They're just like you. That's the emphasis of Deuteronomy that's completely absent in other ancient documents that, again, always looked at different people as being more godlike, more superior, uh, etc. And, and they inherently had uh, this uh, more rights than you. You don't see that in Deuteronomy. Everybody has the same rights. Uh, no one is to take a bribe, you know, and to treat anybody different. And, of course, Christ in Deuteronomy, it's the third most quoted book. When Jesus rejects Satan's temptations, all three times he goes to Deuteronomy nowhere else. Jesus, probably like every other good Jewish boy and girl, memorized large portions of Deuteronomy. That's the book that they would have memorized. I've already pointed out to you in Josiah's great reform, uh, it was the book of Deuteronomy, almost certainly, that was rediscovered in the temple. And so, a uh, powerful book, awesome book. I love the book, and I think uh, if there was one Hebrew scroll that I could get for myself to study, it would be the book of Deuteronomy. Because I think um, it's just so filled with who God is, and what we are to do to serve him. So, uh, any questions or comments? I wanted to get all that in. So we're going to get into the text next week, uh, but I wanted to give you the background, the importance, maybe wet your whistle. Hopefully you're more excited about it now than you before, and you're not saying, well, I ain't coming back after that. So go ahead, Jim. It's interesting, so witnesses Yeah, yeah. That, that's what you see in the, in the other treaties as well, when, at least according to the scholarly literature, uh, because the witness, the incentive of the witness is don't fail to do your part. You know? So the witness is like, if you fail, you're going to be caught. You know? There's a sense in which you don't need a witness when you succeed. right? Uh, when you succeed, in fact, you, you want to humble yourself and give God the glory. So that's the way I see it, Jim. Yeah, that it's more in a sense of, uh, and again, that's what you see. It's, you know, they're bearing witness so that you don't fail. So, all right, well, let's close with prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you for your goodness. We thank you for your word and this word. And I pray, Father, as we study it, you would guide us, you would bless us, and let uh, us continue to want to serve you now, Father, even as you exhorted your people so many years ago. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.